The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't want us to think that we completely dodged a potential 2024 bullet, but I do think that at the state level, um, we saw some, we certainly saw some races break in ways that bode better than they uh, would have if they had gone the other way for the prospect of um, actually having state election officials and governors certify the results of an election in 2024, whether the state votes for the Democratic or Republican candidate. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 10th, 2022. On Tuesday, November 8th, Americans finished casting their ballots in the midterm elections. Given that the president's party typically performs poorly in the midterms, Democrats were poised for major losses, and Republicans were ready to celebrate a red wave, handing them control of both the House and the Senate. But instead, Democrats saw a striking overperformance— And as I'm recording this on Wednesday afternoon, control of both the House and the Senate remains up for grabs. I sat down with my fellow Lawfare senior editors, Scott Anderson and Molly Reynolds, to talk through what we know and don't know about the results. Was this a stay of execution for American democracy? If the GOP does take the House by a narrow margin, how hard is it going to be for the messy Republican caucus to stick together? And what do questions over control of Congress mean for the January 6th investigation and key foreign policy issues like aid to Ukraine? It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 10th. The midterms, so far. Molly and Scott, thanks for sitting down with me after a very long night. We're going to do this sort of roundtable style, but I will kick it off with some questions Just to kind of situate us, Molly, we're recording at around noon on Wednesday, the day after the election. What do we know so far? Uh, Thanks for reminding me what time and day it is, because otherwise I'm not sure I would know. Um, That was a serious comment reflecting on the amount of sleep I had last night. Where we are now is that there's still um, a large number of house races that are uncalled, some of them in places on the East Coast and the Midwest, where they are still too close to call, and then a number on the West Coast, where by virtue of really heavy use of um, mail-in balloting in places like California and Washington State, it simply takes longer to count um, the elections. I think if I were kind of handicapping uh, where we are likely to be going, I think the House, as people expected, uh, still ends up with a Republican majority. Uh, We can talk later, and I think we should, about the likely consequences of a very slim uh, Republican majority, because I think that's, again, what we are um, most likely looking at. In the Senate, again, the overall picture is still unclear. We have uncalled Senate races in both Arizona and Nevada. And then in Georgia, it's looking increasingly like the race will go to a runoff. Um, Again, for anyone listening to this podcast who lives in Georgia, I am sorry uh, for the continued number of political ads that you will have to watch while that race um, (laughs) wraps up. 
I think in general, um, we should sort of think of this as an underperformance for Republicans based on what I'm just going to refer to as the fundamentals. So as close to an iron law as we have in American politics is that the president's party loses seats in the midterms. Um, there are only um, a few times uh, where we have seen the president's party pick up seats in midterm elections um, in the post-war era. Most recently was in 2002, a move that was is largely attributed to uh, the kind of wartime footing of the U.S. during the the 2002 midterms. And so, you know, even if um, Republicans, you know, do pick up seats from the Democrats, um, and it's a it's a small number, I think we should um, we should see that as an underperformance again, in part because of the kind of the overall economic situation. So um, the, the fundamentals would tell us that there should be a voter backlash against the president's party and that that backlash should probably be bigger because um, of things like um, the high um, high inflation um, and, and that sort of thing. Why uh, did we get this? Um, there's been a fair amount of talk, particularly in the context of the Senate races, that this some of this is about candidate quality, candidates like um, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, who really were perhaps not the best match for the electorates in question. I think we can um, we can talk about the role of Dobbs, um, the Supreme Court decision on abortion. Um, I think this is certainly part of it as well. But I do also want to just underline that like we're seeing a Republican underperformance in a number of House races as well, where I think candidate quality is just less of an of an issue. Again, we can look to specific races where Republicans nominated for the House or ran House incumbents who are out of bounds in one way or another. Um, but I think as is true in basically anything um, in trying to explain elections, like there's no one explanation that is going to tell us kind of how we got to where we are. And we should be really wary of anyone who is peddling like this is the this is the one thing um, that um, that led Republicans to not perform as well as folks were expecting, and as the fundamentals uh, would have predicted. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, just maybe to like to step back uh, or up a level a little bit, is that you know I think all around this has to be seen as a pretty substantial defeat by Republicans, and particularly, frankly, the kind of Trump affiliated wing of Republican Party both because they backed a lot of these candidates that have candidate quality questions, which I think is actually a term that's kind of used to describe a couple different things, but also because you've seen a lot of kind of high profile people affiliated with that wing, Lauren Boebert in Colorado, was it Mo Bynes, I think in North Carolina, um, some other folks kind of fall by the wayside or at least be at risk of that. I think the Boebert race still hasn't been called yet, but is currently behind by a percent or two. And that's like pretty notable. And it's all the more damaging because we went into this with a very strong expectation and narrative fueled in part by rhetoric among primarily Republican supporters, but also by kind of the media and by a lot of projection assessments we had of a potential Republican weight. And when you fail to meet those expectations, I think that kind of amplifies the extent to which this is a defeat. Now, maybe Republicans will end up controlling the House, maybe they'll end up controlling the House and the Senate by slim margins. And I do think that probably mitigates it a little bit. But I suspect we're going to see a big result of this not be necessarily, or one of the biggest results be infighting within the Republican Party, potentially, because this is the kind of the biggest weakness we've seen, I think, in that kind of Trump-backed faction in the last few years. And we know there are people, whether it's Ron DeSantis from kind of in the same lane, but now trying to distinguish themselves in little ways, or whether it's from Liz Cheney trying, kind of taking a very confrontational combative stance against that wing. There are people who have been waiting for opportunities to jump in and begin to undermine it. And I think this might provide that opportunity or at least opens that pathway. Yeah. So I want to um, maybe disagree a little bit with some of that. And I want to say that to my mind, um, basically, there is no Trump faction in the Republican Party. Like most of the Republican Party is pro-Trump. Um, and that's not to say there isn't going to be infighting to come. And again, like I think about this from a governance perspective. And so we can talk at 
at whatever length people want about um, the consequences of factionalism within particularly the House Republican Conference for Governance. But I don't see, I don't read what happened um, last night as sort of a rejection within the Republican electorate of Trump. I think that kind of where the Republican Party is now um, is with a lot of what we would consider sort of Trumpy ideas. I think this, this question of like, who is a potential successor to Trump is a important one, but I don't see those folks as categorically different than Trump himself on a lot of the like actual substance that matters. I think this gets to something really important, which is how we read these results as a response to Trumpism and the sort of anti-democratic authoritarian turn in the Republican Party that we've seen under Trump and, and in response to him. I've seen a lot of very smart people on Twitter, political scientists, reporters, journalists, suggesting that this is really uh, not only a bullet dodged, but potentially showing us a route out from our current sort of pit <laughs> of political discourse in, in the United States insofar as a significant amount of voters really rejected anti-democratic candidates. And we're going to talk in a minute about how uh, election deniers on the state level failed um, and what that means for the security of the 2024 election. On the other hand, uh, as you say, Molly, you know, the Republican Party is a Trumpy party right now, whatever the particular view of any particular Republican is. And I think we we see this really strongly in the performance of Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who really cruised to a resounding victory in Florida and turned the whole state of Florida, made it very clear that I think Florida is no longer a purple state. It is a Republican stronghold. And DeSantis, there's been a lot of commentary that DeSantis is kind of coming out of this extremely well positioned for 2024. Um, as a, a challenger to Trump. Now, I think we can debate, you know, the the relative democratic danger posed by DeSantis versus Trump. But I think it's fair to say that DeSantis has embraced a lot of the sort of authoritarian elements of Trump's discourse and approach to power in terms of leveraging state power against his opponents um, and against vulnerable groups that are sort of inconvenient for him. And that is concerning as well. So at the end of the day, I'm sort of not quite sure how to read this when it comes to the overall democratic health of the United States. Molly, I want to go to you first for your response to that. And then Scott, let's hear from you. Yeah. So I think where I am, at least right now, the morning after the election on this question is that what we saw last night is a um, maybe a, a necessary but not sufficient condition for a way out of the pit, as you described it. Uh, I think that for the country to climb out of the pit, to again, continue with that metaphor, um, the incentives for Republican candidates need to change pretty substantially. Um, they they need to see that being anti-democratic, embracing some of these authoritarian impulses, and more generally, like using service in the United States Congress as a platform from which to you know go viral and say things and have culture war fights. That that's not going to reward them um, as candidates. Um, and to the extent that there are policy goals that the Republican Party wants to pursue that are perhaps more broadly popular on things like taxes, that, you know, what they are doing in elections is not going to get them there. Um, and so I think having a bad election night is a a part of that, but I don't think it's sufficient to to get us out of um, of where we are. Yeah, I mean, I think what one thing I was thinking about while watching these results was the uh, famous Republican 2012 autopsy, uh, trying to figure out sort of where they went wrong in that election and deciding they needed to go in a different direction, be more open to immigration. Obviously, that was not what happened. But that there is a kind of tradition of the party that loses doing an autopsy of a sort and deciding, you know, we need to go in a different direction, our message is not appealing. If the Republican Party were sane, perhaps I could imagine that it would pivot away from everything that you've just described and, and perhaps put us in a better position in terms of democratic stability, given that it is not 
um, it's not clear to me at all that it will reject the kind of, you know, playing things up for the camera, hard to soft authoritarian, whatever you want to call it, approach, even if that keeps losing at the polls. And that does put us in a dangerous place. You know, I, I agree with what both of you have said, and, and it kind of gets back to what I was trying to say earlier. You know, this is, insofar it's a first step, it's an opening precisely because in seeing the failure of this kind of platform of Republican candidates, many of whom have ties to kind of a Trump-oriented, anti-democratic, potentially um, kind of worldview falls short. It provides political incentive for people to provide tack a different way and potentially opportunities for them to do so or build a case for doing so within the Republican Party, um, which I do think is kind of the only way you get out of this trap ultimately. Um, you know, maybe you cruise into some scenario where Democrats have a majority throughout the country persistently. Um, I'm not sure that's healthy for democracy because the Democratic Party isn't static anymore than the Republican Party is. Competitive democracy, I think, is generally good. It's just you need to have both parties committed to democratic norms. And like having people have political opportunity within the Republican Party to make a case for democratic norms, I think, is the first step towards reaching you know a more stable path out of the pit. Um, and, I, and like I said, I think this is that opportunity to some extent in falling so short of the expectations game, even if Republicans end up in control of the House or the Senate. I'll say also, I, you know, I think the issues kind of that we are hearing coming out as saying people are attributing to why we've seen Republicans fall short actually kind of feed into this a little bit, although neither one really gets at it directly. You know, the the big item in exit polls that I've seen, although I'd welcome correction or, or supplementation on this, is, is that, you know, inflation was probably the number one issue a lot of voters identified, and then abortion was the second one, the kind of the post-ops landscape. And abortion has obviously a substantive issue. It's a, it's a rights issue for half our, the country's population, really the whole country's population in various ways, but most directly for half the rights the country's population. But there is a procedural element to it, right? It's this idea of a, a revocation of rights, a kind of anti-democratic revocation of rights, and then potentially this now new democratic slash not always democratic struggle across the states saying, well, are we going to get superseding federal legislation dictating abortion rules? How are different states installing abortion rules? How far do they push against individual rights? How far are states going to codify those rights in their state apparatus? And democratic norms are a big part of that discussion, I think. And then the candidate quality descriptor, I really think a lot of candidate quality, not all of it, but a lot of it really does intersect with this democratic norms question because there's ideas about temperament, there are ideas about you know mainstream appeal, ideas about you know who you're leaning into, how pragmatic you seem, that are all kind of bundled together as this candidate quality idea, and those reflect a lot of those again democratic norm ideas. It's not a coincidence the candidates with the biggest candidate quality questions are the ones backed by Donald Trump and that. Are strong, most strongly leaning in the kind of rejecting the the big lie direction, rejecting the twenty twenty election results. So, you know, again, I think there's an, a case to be made that these results can help build a case for democratic norms actually being an electoral issue, including in the Republican Party. And, and that's the way out of this morass, I think, is to have to restore the the commitment there to some sort of democratic norms. It's a long road and a long way to get there, but ten years ago when a lot of these people, Republican politicians were still here before the Trump days, there weren't as much doubts about that fundamental commitment. And there, you know, it may not be that hard to pull a lot of people. I think a lot of people in both parties kind of ride a wave of political support. I'm not sure all the people backing former President Trump or even aligned with him politically in the Republican Party are diehard committed to that particular worldview and may yet shift if the Republican center of gravity shifts elsewhere. Yeah, so I want to make sure we're not glossing over um, some really troubling things that still could come out of the election results. Um, and I think that if we look at some state level races, we see a like good mix of some healthy developments from uh, like protecting democracy, 
concerns about conducting a fair presidential election in 2024 from those perspectives, while also, um, again, holding uh, space for the idea that we might still see some really troubling results from that perspective come in as some of these races that have yet to be called do uh, finish counting votes. And so if we look at, say, some of these East Coast and Midwest governors' races, um, they tended to break well for what I'm going to kind of call minimizing the potential for mischief um, in a 2024, uh, sort of the certification, say, of a 2024 presidential election. So um, you had uh, Democratic candidates win against candidates who, to varying degrees, were professing big lie type messages who were um, calling into question whether they would have certified Biden's victory in 2020. So you saw um, Democratic gubernatorial candidates win in Pennsylvania, where the Republican candidate Doug Mastriano was himself um, very involved in post-election mischief uh, in 2020. In Michigan, in Wisconsin, you saw uh, secretaries of state, which in some places have responsibility for administering elections. Um, and here I want to give a big shout out to um, the work of the team at Bolts, um, who has a really have a really great resource for tracking some of these state level races. Um, but there in Georgia, we saw Brad Raffensperger, who's a, a sort of high profile figure in um, the attempt to properly and correctly certify the Georgia election in 2020. You saw him get reelected in some other states, in Michigan, in Minnesota, in New Mexico, um, you saw Democratic uh, secretaries of state candidates beat election-denying Republicans. But at the same time, the Secretary of State race in Arizona, uh, where the Democrat, as we're recording this, is currently leading, has yet to be called. The Republican candidate there is an election denier. Um, and then in um, Nevada, similarly, the Secretary of State candidate um, is is a very prominent election denier. And so I don't want us to think that we completely dodged a potential 2024 bullet. But I do think that at the state level, um, we saw some, we certainly saw some races break in ways that bode better than they uh, would have if they had gone the other way for the prospect of um, actually having state election officials and governors certify the results of an election in 2024, whether the state votes for the Democratic or Republican candidate. Yeah, I'll start by just seconding the shout out to Bolts, which covers uh, sort of state and and local uh, races and and politics, and is has just been an incredibly useful resource throughout this this whole uh, midterm saga. I do think you're you're very right to point to what these results mean for concerns about election administration in 2024. And I will definitely say, um, as of now, we're waiting for results from Arizona still. I certainly am worried about what may happen if Carrie Lake, who is the Republican candidate for governor uh, and has been really out front um, on election denialism, if she wins. But overall, as you say, you know, the East Coast and Midwest races are encouraging in terms of not having a total catastrophe in 2024 in terms of state-level mischief. Scott, you have studied the Electoral Count Act, which is the, the statute under which we might see a lot of that mischief. Can you give us a sort of walkthrough of the mechanics of what it is about those races that could potentially prevent things from going really, really wrong? So it's a little bit of a complicated picture right now because the Electoral Count Act is undergoing uh, reform at the moment. Uh, in certain ways, that may actually strengthening the tr the relevance of these questions for for the resolution of a potential presidential election, which is what the Electoral Count Act deals with. But the both the reforms kind of proposals we've had, which are fairly similar, um, that are being under consideration lean in the same direction as the current act does perhaps more effectively, where they try and prioritize essentially the state's resolution of any disputes over the election, giving precedence to a result set of results provided by the relevant state official, usually executive official, the secretary of states play, can play a strong role in this as well, depending on their state law, who then provides certification by a certain safe harbor window um, that then gets beneficial weight 
depending upon how subsequent resolutions might come forward, but get the beneficial weight in the formula that the Congress is supposed to use in resolving and counting these sorts of uh, results in, in determining who's whose slate of electors essentially gets to cast electoral votes. So having a state level officials who might be willing to turn results in a particular direction um, has been a source of concern, uh, or state legislatures willing to turn particular elections in a particular direction has been a major source of concern for the last several years. We know there was discussion about trying to do that in the context of 2020 in Pennsylvania and other places that never really manifested much, uh, although we did see a variety of kind of fake slates of electors submit contrary results, um, and that are now some of which are being the subject of investigation by the Justice Department. So it's not an entirely uh, did not come to pass, but nothing really proved instrumental in, in the outcome there. And so when you have, you know, essentially officials that are committed to a democratic process, and you limit that risk of mischief, and it helps reinforce the effectiveness of that of those tools that say, no, we're going to give priority to kind of the state official for um, these sorts of prioritization. It means that you're less worried about those machinations actually being executed and then having some sort of result. It's worth noting that a lot of electoral conduct reforms that are under consideration, like also take account of this possibility that emphasize state procedures, but they also emphasize judicial role in resolving these disputes, making clear the judicial role kind of wins out in the end, um, insofar as they're subjected to state judicial supervision. Um, and so it's, it's, they're almost like a little less relevant than they might have been under the old electoral conduct if those reforms are implemented because there's additional steps being taken to limit the opportunities for those sorts of interference. On the kind of state legislature side, um, you know, we also have this possibility that a state legislature can, for electoral votes, choose to allocate their electoral votes in ways that aren't contingent on an election. No state currently does so, but states did do so until the middle of the 19th century. And at least one state, North Carolina, right now has a law in its books that sets certain conditions out that says, okay, under these conditions, we actually, the state legislature, get to determine who our elector electors are, not the election results. The North Carolina statute is for kind of like emergency circumstances, um, but it's fairly broadly worded. So there's some concern it could be a source of abuse. And other states could adopt similar legislation that might create similar opportunities down the road. Democrats are less inclined to do that or seem less inclined to do, do that in a flexible way that might be open to abuse. And so seeing that sort of shift away from majorities that might be willing to implement that does make those sorts of legislation that sort of tool, which legally could work, um, and it's pretty well established that it could work, but it makes it seem less likely that a state legislature will be enacting that and then seeking to use it for certain ways in 2024. So before we get to the part of the conversation where we talk about governance in Congress in particular, um, I do want to make sure we touch on one other thing that Lawfare um, readers and listeners know that um, we've paid a lot of attention to over the past several years, which is kind of the conduct of um, elections to election administration issues, to the role of mis- and disinformation um, in elections. And to my mind, and Quinta, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this, that by and large, yesterday, um, this was a dog that didn't bark or didn't bark as loudly as maybe we were worried about. Um, so I'm just curious what you think, what you were seeing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me 
their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, before before I respond, I should say that uh, NBC just reported that the Georgia State Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker uh, will head to a runoff. So, so again, uh, to, let to me, reiterate, yeah, exactly. Let me apologize to all of our uh, friends in the state of Georgia. There is <laughs> there are more ads and more people coming to your door to come for the next um, several weeks. But it's still not clear that will be decisive for control of the Senate, right? Because I think we still have Arizona, Nevada, and technically Wisconsin on the map I'm looking That's at. That's true. I think I, even if it's not decisive for control of the Senate, it will still be um, hotly contested um, since not to like take us into the future immediately the morning after the 2022 elections. But the 2024 map is uh, has sufficient challenges for Democrats that it would be in their interest to do as much as they can, um, even if it's not decisive for the majority, um, if, say, they were to lose both Arizona and Nevada, to try and um, make sure they hold um, Georgia. But anyway, Quinta, I want you. I yes. want to hear your thoughts on um, <laughs> sort of uh, election administration and particularly misinformation stuff. 
Yeah. So there have been a lot of folks that have been watching the misinformation question closely among them, the uh, good people at the Election Integrity Partnership who have been doing really incredible work in tracking this kind of thing. It's certainly true that there there was some uh, misinformation. You know, this this wasn't a totally pure case. There there were, I think that the main instance was uh, some falsehoods that were flying around about Maricopa County. There was a printer that stopped working. Uh, the fact that it was a printer, I think is you know, useful in, in that it justifies my personal sense that printers never work and always break down at the time when you need them the absolute most. But generally speaking, I do think that it, it seemed pretty calm. Um, and that is a very, very good thing. It actually reminded me a lot of the actual vote, the day of the vote on 2020, when we were all sort of chewing off our fingernails, wondering if there was going to be violence, what was going to happen. And the vote itself, setting aside everything that happened after, was pretty boring and pretty under control. Obviously, the mechanics of the vote this time around were quite different um, insofar as uh, some jurisdictions are using mail-in ballots less because of the state of the pandemic. Some have settled into using mail-in ballots. But generally speaking, I was extremely relieved that there didn't seem to be sort of major misinformation narratives that really took fire. Again, not saying that there weren't some, and that it also didn't seem like there was any violence to speak of. I think that's very good. Now, it is worth keeping in mind that, you know, the days after elections are just as important for making sure that people receive proper information about election rumors. Um, And especially since it seems like the counting is probably going to take quite a while, we're going to be really need to be on alert for the potential for falsehoods sort of spreading through the information ecosystem in the following days. I do want to make sure that we talk about the actual policy implications of what this next Congress might look like, even though we we don't actually have a sense of the the shape of either chamber. Molly, I'm curious about your thoughts for just the question of how this new Congress might govern. I mean, especially because if there's a Democratic majority, it will be a narrow one. If there is a Republican majority in the House, it probably will also be narrow. What can we expect about the ability of the House at least to just like get things done? Yeah. So I really want to stress here that there's still a lot of uncertainty, um, especially because I think that the exact size of the House majority matters. So particularly for Republicans. So, you know, we've been, I think when people talk about a a narrow majority, um, they, you know, mean five seats, they mean 10 seats, they mean 15 seats. But I actually think the exact circumstances of what flows from a majority, like that actual number matters. And importantly, um, it's also important to think about what a Republican, again, presumptively Kevin McCarthy, would need to offer to various elements in the House Republican Conference to get elected speaker. You know, when we, to harken back to 2018, we saw um, Nancy Pelosi uh, need to build a coalition to get elected speaker in the aftermath of the 2018 midterms. Uh, we saw her make concessions to a combination of individual members of her caucus and blocks within her caucus. What McCarthy would need to do along those same lines, I think, is really important. Um, you know, would he? What kinds of um, procedural concessions might he need to make to say the House Freedom Caucus? I think is um, something to to keep an eye on. I think the question of what would governance look like with a five or six seat House uh, Republican majority, it's hard to know. Um, there's one argument that if he has a very, if um, Republicans have a very narrow, like single digit majority, that means that practically on almost everything, um, McCarthy is going to end up having to go to, um, to Democrats, which might lessen the kind of overall macro risk of chaos. I don't know if I, if I, necessarily agree with that. But there's just a lot of potential for um, legislative difficulty, including on the basic blocking and tackling of um, governing like the debt limit that we might be um, we might be in for with a very narrow um, Republican majority. I think something else that's really important to keep in mind is that um, I just talked about legislating. Um, the kind of oversight picture is much more binary. The 
you know, turning the bus in favor of um, Republican oversight priorities, if Republicans control the House and the Senate, is a lot easier than kind of turning the legislative bus. Um, the majority sets the agenda, regardless of how big that majority is. And so I think that all of the conversations that we and others have been having about the prospect for bad faith oversight of Joe Biden, um, things like an investigation into Hunter Biden, um, and even other investigations that might not be as personally targeted at Biden, but are about things like the circumstances surrounding the withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, or things around investigating uh, the FBI, or uh, investigating, you know, uh, if Republicans take control of the Senate, Rand Paul um, is a is potentially in line to chair the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, and has talked quite a bit about wanting to, you know, do an investigation of the origins of COVID um, and the kind of lab leak hypothesis in China. And so um, those kinds of changes, if there is um, if there is a majority for Republicans in either chamber, are the kinds of changes they can make that don't really depend in the same way on the size of that majority. Molly, you've raised kind of an interesting question about. Uh, the leadership in the House and the Senate um, on the committee level, but you know what does the p- narrow margins in the best of scenarios potentially failure to seize one or both chambers mean for the leadership of the GOP? Uh, I guess Democrats as well, but particularly the GOP if if they end up in control of either chamber. Kevin McCarthy, we know, seems to be the presumptive speaker, but there's always been chatter about other potential candidates, particularly from kind of further to the right or further to the Trump wing. Uh, and in the Senate, we've seen, you know, Minority Leader McConnell and Rick Scott, the head of the Senate campaign effort for the Republicans, be in this kind of bitter fight of words in which Scott has even suggested he may contest McConnell's leadership. Do any of these seem likely or is is really the narrow margins here impact the potential leadership fight? Yeah. So in the House, my like working hypothesis until I see evidence otherwise is that McCarthy would figure out a way to um, get elected speaker with really a heavy emphasis on would figure out a way. So McCarthy has wanted to be speaker for a long time. And I think um, he would start trying to you know, figure out what is necessary to shore up the votes to get there. And that's why, you know, I was saying, just watch like what that looks like and what he has to promise to other people um, within within the conference to get there. In the Senate, it's an interesting question. You're right that Rick Scott has started to um, kind of gesture at this. And you've seen, I think, a couple of Republican senators say, you know, I'm not sure I would support McConnell again. That's another place where you know, it would really, I think, I would really need to see a kind of coherent campaign for by a challenger to um, to unseat McConnell. But that's also probably worth watching. You know, one other uh, now we started talking about committee leadership and, of course, some of these governance issues. Obviously, a big focus in the House for the last two years has been the January sixth committee. Quinta, you know, I think the assumption for most people is that Republicans take control of the House. Uh, we're not going to see the January 6th committee continue in existence <laughs> past January 3rd or whenever the new Congress gets gets sworn in. Do we have a sense about, you know, what happens to the committee, to its work, how this might impact the broader accountability effort it kind of represents moving forward, and and what the committee might be doing with these last few weeks of existence if, if in fact, its its end is nigh? Yeah, I think the committee has always been doing its work with the expectation that it would wink out of existence um, and then not uh, be conjured back into existence in the new Congress. Uh, Just because, uh, as Molly said, the president's party typically loses uh, in the midterms. So... As far as they're concerned, I think that they may have gotten a stay of execution, but probably not. And... They seem to be doing as much as they possibly can in these remaining weeks. Molly, I I think you described it to me as uh, running through the tape. Um, They've been posting on Twitter about how they're interviewing new witnesses. They're continuing their investigation. Um, They're clearly going to, you know, put down their pens at, you know, exactly the last possible second. We are expecting a final report 
from the committee. They have also promised that they're going to release a number of transcripts from these uh, depositions that they've conducted with various witnesses, and those have not appeared. So I would expect those to, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of pages to be dumped on every reporter's desk uh, at some time in the coming months. It's also, since we're talking about the, the January 6th committee, worth uh, giving a shout out to uh, Elaine Luria, Democratic representative who was on the panel and lost her seat in a really tight re-election race in Virginia Beach last night. I think it was, she she seemed pretty resigned to the possibility that she was going to lose an interview. She'd spoken about her work on the January 6th committee and said, you know, if this, if my my work on the committee prevents me from winning re-election, that's a trade that I'm I'm willing to make. But it is worth noting that. And Molly, I'm curious for your thoughts here. No, I agree with um, basically everything you just said. And I think it's impossible to know um, if her service on the January 6th committee is part of what led, um, what led Luria to lose her seat. But, you know, it is worth remembering that there are several members of that committee who will not be returning to service in the next Congress. Um, in addition to Luria having lost, um, Stephanie Murphy um, from Florida chose not to run for re-election. Both Liz Cheney lost in a primary. Adam Kinzinger chose not to run. So we will uh, we will not see a number of those folks back um, in um, in the next Congress. Molly, one idea that we've heard floated occasionally from folks in relation to the January 6th committee is the idea that if the Senate remains in Democratic control, it might somehow continue the mission, take up the reins, and pursue some sort of similar accountability mission, either of its own or kind of directly taking off from the January 6th committee's work. How feasible, how realistic is that, even if Democrats do end up with the, you know, 50-50 plus the vice president control of the Senate or even 51-49? Yeah, so I don't think it's an especially likely possibility to kind of set up a similar panel in the um, in the Senate, um, and I say that for a couple reasons. One is that temporary investigative committees, like the January sixth committee, have not really been a part of Senate culture in recent history in the same way that they have been in the House. The Senate has ever um, had them, um, but it's generally in recent years handled high profile investigations through its existing standing committees, including sometimes. Through partnerships between existing standing committees. This is actually what is true of the work that the Senate did um, to investigate January 6th in in 2021. It used the Senate Rules Committee and the Senate um, Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee working together to do um, some initial investigative work. I think why is this true? I think it's mostly um, not to like talk about Senate culture and Senate norms, but I actually think that's most of what's um, what's going on here. Also, the way that uh, Senate committees are resourced just means it's easier to do um, investigative work uh, without needing special investments in a specific select committee. The other thing um, is that to create um, a new special committee like the January 6th committee, kind of a standalone creature in the Senate. That'd be really hard to do in a evenly divided um, Senate. You'd need to adopt a resolution authorizing um, the committee and funding for it. That could be filibustered. Um, if you think back to the beginning of 2021, uh, Leader McConnell was willing to be obstinate on the initial organizing resolution for all of the committees um, when the Senate was evenly divided. And that was just, again, to set up the Senate's regular committees. Um, so I'd, uh, you'd have to think that he'd do the same on a resolution that was trying to set up a special January 6th um, investigative committee in the Senate. So I think we should, as Quinta was saying earlier, think that at the close of the 117th Congress, this form of congressional work to investigate January 6th will sunset. That's not to say we won't see continued efforts of various kinds to talk about and look at things related to, to January 6th in the new Congress. But I think we should really expect that this particular uh, form Form of investigation um, will ride off into the sunset. Scott, I want to make sure that we touch on the 
uh, potential effects on foreign policy and what the uh, how the different outcomes might affect things. I know in the run-up to the midterms, when there was expectation of a potential Republican wave, there was a lot of conversation around whether that would mean bad things for U.S. aid to Ukraine. Uh, now, I think a, a pause in Ukraine aid seems maybe less likely. What do you think about that and and other foreign policy issues? Yeah, absolutely. The question of how exactly a Republican majority in either chamber might impact foreign policy is is a little bit of a guessing game. You know, individual chambers in control of the contrary party to the incumbent administration have kind of like a variety of tools to impact foreign policy, but they are indirect. Um, they're often to a degree attenuated and they're opportunistic. They kind of come at particular institutional moments where the administration needs Congress's support on a particular thing. Um, and that kind of, I think, impacts the flow of what we're likely to see in terms of Congress trying to impact or shape foreign policy and national security policy more generally. Uh, as Molly's already noted, we see we know that if they control either chamber, particularly if they control the House, um, we're going to see the majority, even a very slim Republican majority, have control of the oversight investigatory functions. I think we've already seen Speaker McCarthy suggest the House is going to pursue investigations of the Afghanistan withdrawal allegations that the Biden administration did something bad or made misjudgments there. That's a convenient issue to investigate in the lead up to 2024 election. We have seen talks about investigations before kind of looking at the whole history of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. You know, I suspect that this might be a narrower one focusing more specifically on the withdrawal decisions in part because those are the ones most problematic for the Biden administration, least problematic for the Trump administration kind of setting up things and let alone prior Republican Democratic administrations. We also uh, have on McCarthy's list potentially COVID origins investigation. I think Molly, you mentioned in regards to the Senate. I think that was on McCarthy's list too, but I could I could be mistaken about that. Um, that obviously has a China policy nexus there. We saw during the Trump years, both Congress and the Trump administration really try and use COVID origin story as a wedge against China in various ways. We even see all legislation, um, primarily backed by Republicans in the House, trying to open up routes to litigation against China over. COVID-19. So we may see a revival of at least that rhetoric and kind of an angle and one that is kind of, while there's a kind of broader, I think, general consensus that China is a rival, I don't know if that angle is one the administration is particularly uh, favorable towards. I doubt it is. Um, and so that might be a source of some tension. We also see this FBI investigation, Molly already mentioned. We saw a report come out of the Judiciary Committee, which is likely to be chaired by Jim Jordan under Republican control, already kind of carving out this narrative and trying to build this narrative with pretty flimsy evidence through a quote unquote thousand page report of which 950 pages were just copies of letters the committee had sent out, but basically making a case the FBI is politically compromised in a variety of ways, a lot of allegations there. So we're likely to see a lot of kind of oversight driven activity that could impact a variety of national security sort of policy questions there. Um, so all these oversight questions are significant. You know, in terms of big policy items like Ukraine, again, it's the opportunistic question. You know, the this Congress, the current outgoing Congress, is going to enact authorities and appropriate funds that will support the Biden administration's policies for the next several months into the, the end of next year. At some point, though, Biden administration is going to have to come back to Congress to seek additional authorization, additional appropriations, maybe sooner, maybe later, depending on how things go in Ukraine and what it feels like it needs to do. And those are the pivot moments where the House can, by being a holdout or the House and Senate together, if they're both in Republican control, exercise more control, exercise more leverage. Right now, the political alignment isn't there to really push back super strong on Ukraine. Ukraine support is pretty popular domestically, um, including among Republicans. But I don't think we should have be too much confidence that that's going to stay the case forever. The next year or two could be very difficult ones economically, both here and abroad. We might see the conflict take a variety of turns, some of which are more painful, either for Americans or more painful to see or lower the expectations that um, you know it's going to come to a conclusion in a timely manner. And then in the lead up to 2024, you're just going to have more political incentive for people to find ways to criticize the Biden administration within kind of the GOP caucus, make them look weaker or less effective. And all those political incentives will mount over the course of the next two years. And when they intersect with those opportunities for um, Republicans in the House, particularly, I think the Senate tends to be a little more in alignment with the Biden administration on, on Ukraine, at least for the moment. But in the House particularly, you might have 
opportunistic moments where they do see an opportunity and have the incentive to push back in various ways. And that could end up limiting Ukraine assistance in the medium to longer term. I think the real question is just, it depends on a lot of other factors that are external to Congress and how those incentives align. You know, aside from the Ukraine assistance point, we don't see as, I think, quite as many kind of big divides over foreign policy issues as we've seen in the past. Um, You know, in the past, there's a lot of tension between the Obama administration and the Republican Congress over policy towards Iran. And that probably would still be here if the Biden administration were really actively pursuing a JCPOA follow-on agreement, but that looks for the moment at least to be pretty dead in the water. In general, the Biden administration is cooler on engagement with Iran over a variety of issues, in part because of Iran's own, you know, human rights records related protests and what's happening there domestically at the moment. So I don't know if that's going to be such a big flashpoint, although it depends a little bit down the road uh, to see where that where events and relationship with Iran and those negotiations may go. Same with China. Again, as I mentioned, everybody seems to be in agreement that we're in a more confrontational mode with China or competition mode with China. That can take different stripes and different avenues. The House may want to push on in ways that the Biden administration don't, doesn't think are productive, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's a bunch of other issues. Those aren't even strictly partisan always. Sometimes there's as much institutional. You know, We saw Nancy Pelosi take a very controversial visit to Taiwan just the last few months in ways that the administration at least claimed to have objected to. So, you know, but that those tensions might be there and political incentive might provide opportunities to kind of for Republicans to try and push harder on China than the Biden administration wants to on particular fronts. But I don't think you're likely to see a major point of tension there. The one where you may see what we've seen pop up before is relationship with Israel, actually, um, particularly because we've just seen Israel go through a fairly major election in the last week itself, and the return to power of Bibi Netanyahu, kind of a a controversial figure in part because he had such a close relationship personally with former President Trump uh, and a fairly adversarial relationship with former President Obama. Joe Biden is fairly, you know, open about being pro-U.S.-Israel relationship. Um, We've already seen the U.S. ambassador to Israel reach out to Netanyahu and say, in fact, no, we want to maintain our special relationship. As President Biden has said, I know BB well, and he does from, you know, years of Senate Foreign Relations Committee and being on the scene. But, you know, nonetheless, we've seen BB lean much closer towards the Republican Party pretty openly during the Trump years. We also saw him be invited by the Republicans to give a pretty confrontational speech um, regarding Iran and other issues during the Obama administration. We could see a return to those dynamics um, if BB sees it in his own domestic political interests uh, and Republicans here want to play up that angle. I suspect that might be a point of friction over the last next few years on the foreign policy front. So I just want to add one specific thing on Ukraine before we wrap up and I'll go take a nap, um, which is to say that I think the um, prospects of additional large-scale aid um, to Ukraine in uh, the next Congress are a really good example of the kind of governing challenges that we might see, but also that we might not. Then it's just, it's a lot of um, about kind of what will different um, elements within the Republican Party are really prioritized. So up till now, um, as Scott said, we've seen um, aid to Ukraine be a largely bipartisan project in the House and the Senate. Um, that's really been sustained by strong support and leadership on the issue from Leader McConnell in the Senate. And so in a worlds where Republicans have control of the House, I think it will really matter how much the kind of Ukraine skeptical component of the House Republican Conference wants to push on the issue versus how much political capital McConnell, whether he's majority leader or um, minority leader, and again, my working assumption is that he will still be the Republican leader in the Senate, I could be proven wrong, but how much political capital he would want to expend to try to sustain the levels of support that we've um, we've seen so far. And it's just, it's really hard to know what that would look like. But I think there are other issues on which we might see kind of a similar dynamic within the Republican Party across the two chambers. I'll harken back to some of the 
um, experiences of the last time Republicans um, had a majority um, in in both chambers, and we had a, a Democratic president, which involved a lot of House Republicans um, sort of going down roads where they had no room to maneuver. Um, our um, Brookings colleague Sarah Bender talks about um, heading into box canyons a lot, and so we would see the House Republicans find themselves in a box canyon with no way to get out. And so I think we could see some of that uh, reemerge, and I think Ukraine is a, is a good example of that. I think on that note. Um, we'll probably wrap it up here. Thanks to Scott and Quinta for um, for joining me to have a conversation. And thank you, Molly. Yeah, thanks to you both. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events, and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast was edited by Jen Pache Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.